0: Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Hello everyone, I'm Joanna Shuker and I'm Director of Design and Innovation here at the RSA. It's my great pleasure to welcome you all to today's event, launching the RSA's Living Change Season, which is a series of events, activities, blogs, and articles showcasing the people, the networks, and the organizations that are embracing uncertainty as an opportunity for innovation. look at the fault lines that the pandemic exposed, some of the brilliant responses and innovations that have been developed, and the opportunities for lasting change that this presents. So to open this event series, um, we have invited a panel of inspirational change makers to share their stories of innovation. But before we hear from our three fantastic guests today, I'd like to say a little bit about what we mean by living change. So the RSA's living change approach, recognizes that living systems are dynamic complex and interconnected that identifying root causes of complex problems is the first step to achieving lasting change that overcomes the challenges that we face today and that acting entrepreneurially is the second step innovating testing and iterating in a way that meaningfully changes our living system for the better we also know that for any social change to be lasting effective and just it must engage and involve actors at all levels of the system. Over the course of the coming weeks, we'll be diving deeper into this approach to explore how we can begin to apply it and to learn from the examples of others forging change. I'm delighted to have the chance today to speak to three brilliant change makers, each responsible for steering innovation in their field to tackle complex social, environmental and economic problems. Joining me today to tell their stories of community innovation, frontline innovation and funding innovation are Ruth Ibegbuna, Kaisa Haino and Cassie Robinson. Ruth um, is a serial founder of Cool Things, beginning with the letter R. These include the multi-award winning youth leadership charity Reclaim and the Roots Program, a radical new approach to bridging divides between UK communities. Her latest R project is the Rekindle School, a unique supplementary school opening in September 2021, led by an active young management group from South Manchester, all aged between 17 and 24. Thank you, Ruth, for joining us today. Next, I'd like to welcome Kaisa Heino. Kaisa is the deputy mayor of the city of Imatra in South Karelia, Finland. Kaisa is a lawyer by trade and has served in various roles as a civil servant in the state treasury of Finland, the city of Lappinranta, and the social welfare and health agency of South Karelia. She was appointed deputy mayor of IMATRA in June 2018 and has since led on the reform of a range of public services and facilities. And despite the many challenges that COVID has presented, she's continued to spare her community-centric redevelopment through grassroots, frontline, and systems-level innovation. Thank you, Kaisa, for joining us as well. And last but not least, um, I'd like to welcome Cassie Robinson. Cassie is the Deputy Director of Funding Strategy at the National Lottery Community Fund, where she's responsible for innovation, policy, and practice. Cassie is an experienced strategic designer and also co-founder of the Point People, stewarding loss and funder ecosystems. She has a policy fellowship at the Institute of Innovation and Public Purpose at UCL, and in 2021, she was appointed associate fellow at the Loverholm Centre for the Future of Intelligence, with a focus on the role of design and shaping that future. You'll find links in the chat, our speakers work and ways to connect with them online, as well as more information about the RSA's living change um, season. So I'm going to invite each of our speakers today to share their stories of innovation in their own fields. And then we'll have the opportunity to open up a space for discussion and questions. Um, and do join the conversation on Twitter. You can use the hashtag Change. So um, I'll hand over first to you, Ruth. Could you start off by telling us your story of community innovation?
1: Hello, everyone. Um, nice to be here. Um, Dialling in from West Yorkshire, in, in north of England. Um, my background is very much um, one of education and youth leadership. So I'm an ex-teacher, a very frustrated ex-teacher, got very fed up with the system, and I've always worked alongside young people, especially working class young people, or young people from working class communities. Um, I've always believed in their power to shift power dynamics and I've always believed that they are capable agents of their own destiny but for lots of reasons and we're going to get into systemic stuff later, um, life can be very hard for them to kind of have agency in that field. So the the dream has always been to um, create a school by and for working class young people um, where working class young people would feel that they could create the change they wanted with a curriculum that spoke to them and dealing with... um, their cultural lives as well as their social lives and looking at what are some of the issues that are kind of pervasive in their communities that feel really relevant to them and also having people at the front of those classrooms that look and sound like them. So this is a dream I've had for at least 20 years of my life Um, and pre-COVID it was coming to the point that um, I had some time in my life, I had recently adopted a child um, and I thought this is now a time to um, start getting back to what I felt my purpose was on this planet. So I was working with a group of young people and we were talking about what would this school look and feel like, who would it be for, how would it work? And then COVID hit um, and it changed everything because all our carefully constructed plans, all the adults we've been consulting with, all of a sudden we were there with the plan of a school in tatters because we couldn't get out of our houses, we couldn't speak to anyone, we couldn't um, talk to the community. And we'd we'd ignited a spark. We'd started to talk to people about this school and they really believed in it. And at a time that felt so hopeless, we had communities who were looking forward to this school arriving. Um, And the young people that I'd been liaising with and consulting with, they'd all lost their jobs. They were the first ones to go in COVID, unstable jobs, working hospitality. They all lost their jobs instantly, most of them by text message. So we started to reimagine what would this school be like if actually what we did is the young people work to bring the school to life. So rather than just sit as consultants or for us to have them as focus group. These young people had the jobs to bring the school to life. So, we had a 17 year old working on safeguarding. She trained herself, she went to all the training, she wrote our safeguarding policies. We had an 18 year old who put himself through an accountancy program and he did all the budgetary stuff and finance. We had a 20 year old who was in charge of partnerships and sponsorships. She was absolutely brilliant. And what we found was that at a time after the George Floyd killing in the States, when the young people i was working with predominantly black young people who were very very energized and feeling that they wanted to be involved in activism but were actually locked into their houses this was an outlet for them to feel that they were being constructive and to feel that they were making a change and you know we also had the situation in the uk where a lot of young people from the more disadvantaged backgrounds had their exam grades actually massaged down so we had a situation in which the children I was working with, the young people I was working with, faced kind of the triple whammy of their communities being hit hardest. Black and black and brown communities were dying at twice the rate of their, their white communities. They had the injustices that they'd seen in the States that really, really upset them, and then the school they were working on. So they became innovative. We moved everything online, and that's where young people are happiest anyway. We had meetings online. They did all their pitching online. And what we found was that actually the young people were completely capable of leading this thing. And I think even in my heart, I'd imagine young people kind of at the front. But what happened because of COVID is they were completely at the front. They were leading this thing, they are bossing me around, they were telling me what to do. They wrote their their own curriculum. They were liaised, they watched every single TED talk you could watch about education. um, And the school started to come together. And I think because we had young people at the forefront of this, the community fell in behind it and thought, this thing is inspiring to see young people. We've got young people on our board from the care system. We've got young people who are neurodiverse. We've got young people who have come from very difficult, very challenging backgrounds. And what they were absolutely adamant about was that this school was not for the young people who would thrive anyway. They wanted a school for young people who needed to fall back in love with education, young people who needed to be held tight by the community and shown that the community still cared about them. So this is a school for young people who are struggling, for young people who are young carers, for young people who are in the care system, and for young people who may have been bullied or really struggled in mainstream education. The thing I've learned from the the experience of COVID is that even in the bleakest times, those young people who were furthest away from feeling supported, came through the strongest for me. I think the thing that we got very wrong within the pandemic is we didn't talk to young people, we didn't comfort young people, and we didn't recognise the fact that they felt especially vulnerable. Um, And I think having this outlet for the young people of Rekindle has allowed them to feel that they're making a connection and they're leading something that is important to society. The number one thing that has come through for me is that young people have got the capabilities of absolutely leading Important change and not on the issues that we necessarily think they should lead change on, but on the issues that they care about. I never imagined that 17 and 18-year-olds could write a full curriculum. They have, and it's brilliant. They've come up with our tagline, which is creating face critical thinkers. They've come up with this new school uniform that suddenly every young person in their area wants to wear because it's pretty cool. They have absolutely turned the narrative on what is what a young person from a minority community who's locked into a very small house. These are not young people who who had space to go out, freedom and roaming during lockdown. These young people were locked in with, with families in small spaces, and they've turned it into something brilliant. So for me, the thing that I've taken from Covid is I believed in young people beforehand my whole career has been about that but now I absolutely trust young people to lead we need to involve them in decisions about important things not the trivial things we don't really care about what they say but the important things because actually those who lived on the periphery have the passion and lived experience to create change we all know it but letting go of the reins and allowing them to do it has been absolutely game-changing for us and our school will open as we dreamed on the 1st of September 2021, thank
0: you. What a wonderful story, Ruth, and what a wonderful um, initiative. It's, it's so exciting to see that energy in communities, You know, to look at you know, part, parts of our communities that, that are systemically marginalized um, and, and where you know, perception is that these are groups that have nothing to give to society. You know when when placed in a leadership role and 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 when supported in the right way, um, have so much capacity and so much capability for change. That's that's really really inspirational. Um, thank you so much for sharing. We'll have the opportunity to unpack um, with a few more questions later. Um, but next, I would like to hand over to Kaisa to share your story of innovating at the front line.
2: Thank you so much. And thank you for having me here in this very inspirational conversation. And uh, hello from Finland, Imatra. Um, Imatra is the city um, in southeastern Finland. And I'm the deputy mayor of Imatra since uh, June 20, uh, 2018. And uh, uh, we are uh, situated very close to the Russian border, actually, from this Spot I am sitting right now in the city hall. It's just a few kilometers to the border and a few gilo- kilometers more to the next town uh, after the border, Svet- Svetogorsk. But yeah, uh, we are close to Russia and uh, we are close next to the biggest lake of Finland, Lake Saima. And there is a huge uh, river going across the city uh, that will go all the way to Russian side on the Lake Ladoka. And uh, we are in the midst of uh beautiful nature and a very touristic place. As you can see behind me, the, the building is uh, a famous hotel uh, building from 1903. and. Uh, People, especially from Russia, but internationally and nationally, are coming to Imatra to see the the rapids of the river Vuoxi and and this hotel and the leisure time activities we have here, fishing and sailing and uh, uh, other stuff. So very touristic place, but at the same time, uh, our background and the economy is based on very traditional industries. Uh, such as uh, forest industry and steel industry. So uh, these are the two basics uh, of our economy of the city. And as the COVID uh, started, uh, we were, of course, afraid of um, of the economical and and also the uh, other other, uh, affections of that. the community. But luckily, I have to say that the traditional industries of this area haven't got hit that hard um, of the pandemic situation, but the tourism has, of course, because uh, the border uh, was uh, closed a year ago. And just an example of uh, how much that means for us uh, in this area, in South Karelia, the Russians uh, used about 1 million euros each day they were here so now it's been going on for a year so it's like 350 million euros we have lost in the purchasing power just only by the the Russian visitors so of course it has hit very very uh, strongly on the shops and the restaurants the hotels pass and this kind of um interpreters and the unemployment rate of Imatra is now around 20 uh, wh- percent wh- what comes to the the community and the people i think the two uh, groups that most uh, are affected by the pandemic time are the elderly the people over 70 year old uh, 70 years and then the children and the young people and of course uh, as we entered the covid time uh, the national central government uh, ordered kind of the the older people to stay at their home and of course it it was effective because we didn't have that much um, of uh, mortality rate was re- very very low here in finland but at the same times the impact for the uh, the mental and the physical impacts for these people are immense and we have been trying to find ways on uh, how to how to help them And uh, for the children and the young people, of course, uh, we immediately moved uh, to remote studying on March 20. And uh, for us as a municipality, that wasn't such a big uh, task. It was just over one night because uh, we have had already like five years ago, we started a strategy of uh, digitalization of the education, and at the same time also to modernize all the buildings of uh, the school buildings with all the uh, technological te- technology um, equipment and tools for for the teaching. So uh, technically, that wasn't a big leap for us. All the students had their own laptops, their own uh, Chromebooks, whatever. And it was just that they already took them with us on Friday. And then on Sunday, we said that tomorrow you're not coming to the schools anymore. And Monday at 8 a.m. it all started and our teachers were ready and the students were ready. And it was uh, quite a manageable task in that sense. But yeah, I would say it's an ex- ex- example also uh, of being proactive and it paid off here uh, rather than being reactive. That we had already done this and went a little bit forward with the technology, uh, technology that it, uh, the opportunities it offers. And in that sense, I think um, it ref- reflects a lot on how we... Um, act as a city we are very agile uh municipality because we are a bit of a smaller organization and we can be agile in that sense and and i think it paid off very much here but then of course there was a lot of other things uh we had to Uh, innovate uh try to give out the services for the citizens and just to mention a few what kind of things we did uh we had the call and helping uh uh, services especially for the elderly people we called all the citizens over 80 years old to check how they are and if they needed any help uh fitness and physical trainers uh went around to have like uh uh their training sessions on the yards that the also the elderly people could uh, take part on that and now they are doing it three times a week on web so everybody can just uh, attend whenever they want and uh it they're just lasting there for weeks so if you're not there exactly when the stream is on you can take it uh later on and then uh, a lot of v- virtual events virtual uh, architectural routes museum routes and um events, uh, discussion events with uh, citizens and the city administration and so on. And of course, as we all have gotten used to the remote working uh, when it comes to the administration, uh, we started to monitor the kilometers that we were saving when people were not driving to the city hall and to the meetings. And it didn't take long to get the kilometers to say, OK, we went around the world and now I think we've done that for 10 times or whatever. So it's also like uh, inspirational for, uh, you know, doing something like this and really monitoring. Or how we how we're doing on that and what i'm um thinking uh the aspira- aspirations for the long-term change i think uh the new normal that will start uh probably end of this year i hope um, will be a lot more community centric a lot more uh cooperative uh, and innovative and uh, open-minded that the life that we used to have i think and uh, i think the values of life will be more about the safety nets and the, the things closer to our life the nature the family the community around us and uh, i think uh, this is a good basis on working more with the um uh, the values like SDGs and these kind of things that we have actually started already uh, in our municipality. And we started the year 2021 with the IMATRA challenge with the students and trying to really activate the, the university students of this area and uh, of the whole of Finland to come and um, give their ideas of how make IMATRA uh, this, uh, the new vision of Imatra for 2030, and that was an awesome, um uh, challenge, uh, and we got a lot of students attending that, and a lot of good ideas, and at the moment we are working on opening uh, discussions for for our citizens also to um for their ideas and action plans for IMATRA, for the future of being ready uh, to to the new, the post-COVID time. So uh, for our decision makers, when they are starting uh, to make the new strategy for uh, the city of IMATRA uh, in, in June 2021, uh, they have so much of this background information and ideas already that we are gathering. And uh, at this point, we feel that we are very, very interested in connection, uh, connection connecting and interaction uh, with other cities all around the world to share the ideas and the stories we have uh, all, you know, to benefit all of us. And in order to answer the changing demands of, uh, of the new world, the municipalities around the world, I think, uh, need more interaction, uh, with their communities but also with each other
0: so thank you thank you Kaisa, for sharing your story what really um stayed with me i think is this you know this this point you made around for the last five years having really invested in the future you know you sort of have the sort of future gazing approach to what what is the future of education and the digitization of education and that's one example of i guess how investment in that you know, and these foundations and infrastructure for the long term can make a community more resilient, more responsive, more agile in the future. But you also shared some brilliant examples of how you're currently investing in visioning and imagination for the future that you're not just sort of looking at crisis response in the short term but really thinking about how that new normal is an investment in the future and that's a really nice actually segue into um, the story um, that that Cassie's bringing to the table because I know that that's something that Cassie's
3: really passionate about. So over to you Cassie. Um, Hi, hello and um, thank you for having me. Um, Yeah so I work at um the National Lottery Community Fund um, and we are the largest grant maker of community activity in the UK um and I think one of the things for us um in the crisis um you know I mean first of all we are we were we were there to really resource all of the amazing people community and initiatives and organisations that were really on the front line of responding to the crisis and have continued to be. And, you know, it really did require very immediate and dramatic response from a lot of those organisations. And we saw them needing to adapt in all kinds of ways just to be able to respond. Um, So for me personally, it, it was just such an amazing privilege to actually be in the position I've been in over the last year to try and be resourceful, you know, resource and respond to just such amazing work. So many people stepping up, so many communities showing how important the work they do is. Um, I think as well, like we're in a, in a particular position in terms of our role as a funder, because we are so large, which means that we are able to do many different types of funding. Um, so in last year we, we distributed 650 million pounds to, we did over 13,000 grants, which is an enormous amount, but we were able to, yeah, work, work at different levels and in different ways. So an enormous effort went into the crisis response, um, and you know, I was less involved in that. And some of my colleagues I'm sure didn't sleep for weeks, just trying to get money out the door to people. but we also were able to keep up um, some of our more thematic areas like the Climate Action Fund, you know, the climate crisis has not gone away. And um, so we were able to not just do um, crisis response, but to, to continue with things like our climate action focus. We, we also did quite a lot of funding through what we call EDAs, which are external delegated agreements, um, which is where we're not the best placed organisation to be distributing money because there are communities closer to the ground or, or closer to the particular issue area. So we actually did quite a lot of EDAs as well during the crisis, um, which I think is something that I would encourage more funders to think about doing like are you are you closest to the communities that this money um, is best serving and who should be making the decisions about where money goes. Um, But as well as doing all of that, those different types of funding, we did also um, step back and think about you know, what do we need to be resourcing now that considers um, something beyond the present and beyond the responsive um, crisis needs? Um, so we set up something called the Emerging Futures Fund and that felt very important. It was it was quite, you know, it was in conflict with a lot of the energy and a lot of what was going on at the time to, to sort of suggest that not just being in crisis might be something else to consider. Um, But like I say, because of our scale, we could do a a sort of whole range of different types of funding and the emerging futures fund was really about trying to resource communities to be able to process what they were going through in order to then also kind of seed new narratives and start to imagine alternatives and, and like what they might want to happen next. Um, and that has that has felt an, an important space to, to resource and, and we hope to do more of that. Um, I'll come back to that in my end of my story. Um, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not gonna sort of list, I'm gonna assume broadly everyone's very familiar now with kind of all the things that we saw as a funder working with civil society, all the kinds of things that people were needing to do and respond to. Um, but I think as a funder it was also interesting how we had to work differently and how lots of funders suddenly started working in a way you know it's like everything got thrown out the window and you know we can work quickly we can work based on trust we can be very well set up digitally to make sure we're making the best use of what digital affords um we we can and we should have been centering equity much more than we we have been I'm not talking specifically about the lottery I just want to you know just funders in general um, especially with the Black Lives Matter uprising and you know it it really was a call to the sector which many people have been calling for a long time but it really was a call that I think a lot of funders have really shifted on since uh, and that feels very important so I think there's just lots of new ways of working or um deeper or better ways of working that 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 happened during the time ta- during the last year that I hope will stick um and then I think in terms of the future I mean you know funders have an enormously important role to play um we might wish for, for philanthropy not to exist because philanthropy is not justice but it does currently exist at the moment and so whilst we're in this transition I think you know thinking about you know what is a funder's role in trying to help seed a, a better future? Um, you know, I think funders need to continue to think about their positionality. Um, you know, what is their role in the wider ecosystem? Um, we were very involved in part of something called the funders collaborative hub, which was is being sort of incubated by the association of charitable foundations. And I think, you know, we already saw much more collaborative effort going on during the crisis, but how do funders and those we fund like continue to deepen that kind of um, collaborative work? Um, I personally just wish funders had more ambition for like what else is possible. You know, like this is a time that we need to all like up our game and not lose sight of like what's at stake. Um, And that really does require like, obviously imagination, but also like ambition and and not personal ambition, but ambition for the money and what the money has the potential to do. And and so, you know, this isn't a time for plaster sticking. This is a time for really trying to invest in very transformative work. And I think it's also really been highlighting to us what new kinds of infrastructure is needed in civil society as well. So it's great, like something like what Ruth's doing with Kindle School or Rekindle School. Sorry, Ruth. Um, But, you know, like new kinds of leadership. But we also need um, we're investing in things like new narrative infrastructure infrastructure for imagination, um, infrastructure for foresight, and not just top-down scenario planning type foresight, but what does it mean for communities to be able to anticipate and shape the future? So I think it's really revealed like where there's there's infrastructure missing. Um, And I'm personally really excited by some of the seeds I feel we've planted with the Emerging Futures Fund grantees. Um, But I also think We really can't do any of this, um, have these like ambitions and these hopes and these dreams without also resourcing and making space to heal. I think we can't underestimate the amount of loss and grief and pain that is out there. And I I don't believe I think I think unless we also process that and and resource that as funders in some way, that it's gonna be very hard to have a, a sort of better or different future. Um, so yeah, I'll end there.
0: Brilliant, thank you so much, Cassie. I mean, I've, I've been following your work for for a while and, and it's, it's really exciting to see you really spearhead and push um, the funding sector to be more bold and more ambitious and more, I guess, um, conscientious of, of the role they play in the system as as an enabling um, infrastructure um and it's it's really refreshing actually to hear um your you know the examples that you brought to the table around how quickly and responsively um the, the national lottery community fund was able to to support in this particular um situation during the pandemic both in the short term but also looking further afield um, into the future sort of that ability to work quickly you talked about um, you know, being able to work more digitally, to, to to really base funding relationships on trust and to really think about equity and funding distribution. So, you know, all of these things um I totally agree are definitely there to to stay, hopefully, and and demonstrate that, you know, even even though we, we think we think about maybe funding as maybe the most rigid parts of our system, um, this is a really uh, you know, these are fascinating examples to show that there can be movements and levers anywhere, um, anywhere in the system with with the right initiatives and, and the right ambition. Thank you. Um, so Thank you again all for sharing your stories. Um, I'd love to kick us off with a question on the importance of really thinking systemically, and that's really sort of where um, you know, Cassie, you sort of, you've already mentioned mentioned that in your story. Um, so keen to see whether maybe Ruth or Kaiser, you, you had any any thoughts on this. Um, so in the relation to the living um, change approach um, at RSA, we recognize the importance of thinking systemically to really deeply understand the challenges that face us. Um, Such as the ones presented by the pandemic. Um, So we know that this means recognizing that the challenges are driven by a set of complex relationships between events that we witness, our behaviors, the infrastructure around us, um, the mindsets and the values that define how we live and work. And to address uh, these challenges requires first understanding their complex relationships so the, the complex relationships between them and within the system, and then to, to surface how you might shift them. So just interested to find out how you um, you have, through your response to the pandemic and through through your recent experiences, how you've thought
1: systemically about these challenges that you've been tackling. Um, well, I, I don't mind starting. Um, well, for me, everything about the way we educate young people in the uk especially if we're looking at a systemic level is about kind of power and control and the inability to make room um for new voices for us to feel that pupils are kind of consumers of of, of great knowledge that we want to bestow on them and um, rather than imagining them as um independent youthful dynamic critical thinkers so for me, it's about actually living what I've always kind of believed up here um, and putting that into practice and and getting out of the way um and allowing um young people to take the lead, but having a bit more kind of humility to to follow. And it's hard. I'm someone who's been a CEO, you know, I'm I'm used to kind of knowing what I want and 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 forcing that through, you know, change maker, right? Um and actually as a change maker, falling in line behind other people's visions. And saying, you know, I'm I'm here to kind of help you achieve your vision, even when I I worry about it or I I I don't see where you're going with it, but I believe you've got the the power and lived experience to to get us there. That's been a a, comp- a complete change, and for me, I think our system would be a, a a far stronger one if we tried to do that a little bit more. Brilliant, thank you, Ruth. Um,
0: yeah, it's interesting because I've um. I remember reading somewhere that you know there's lots of different ways to lead. You can sort of read through culture, like really step back and let the culture of the crowd emerge and, and really lead change. Or you could lead with a strong point of view, I guess, which is the maybe the our dominant understanding of what leadership looks like. Um, or um, you know, you, you could lead alongside your community. So you're an active partner in, in change and that, you know, your reflections here really touch on. The need to sometimes really step back and lead through through culture thank you for sharing Kaisa. Okay, so did you want to to share any of your reflections around the need to think systemically
2: yes thank you uh, yeah i i think it was really uh, inspirational what ruth also already told there and and something that i i have have the similar ideas and uh, as I told, we we are suffering with the aging population and at the same time, like the young people are moving out. And and the, how, how this pandemic has uh, affected them is uh, I just heard this morning from the radio that the young people under 20 years old have answered for how happy they are. And they are the worst uh, results for over 20, 30 years that they gave right now. So it's like really affecting them a lot. And how do we get these young people to really uh, get back to the community in a way that they they feel that they are uh, contributing and they are part of it and they, they want to build the future here in Imatra and you know they, they see the future, the bright future and they want to uh, create something new here and this is something I think as a municipality we have a lot of power because we have the educational system here, we have the services for the young people so we have the tools to really uh, encourage them to to feel powerful uh, in this community and also like uh, bring bring the happiness for their lives whatever type they want to but that needs like we have to systemically uh, we have to have the system to get the opinions and the ways of making them in concrete actions and really make uh, the young people interested in uh, answering when we are uh, asking what they want or where they want to influence so i think this is something and uh also the new waves uh ways we have innovated the uh, to use the, the technology also in the municipality for streaming different kind of uh, uh, conversations with the administration and this kind i think this is a way also to interest the the young people to take more part of what we are how we want this city to be in the future Sure. So this is something I, uh, I'd i like to uh, ha- see that it's not only now during the pandemic or right after it, but it's something that will last for the future.
1: Can I, can I just add one thing? It's just so interesting to hear you talk about that because our young people, when they sat with a, a, a blank piece of paper thinking about how do they want to educate, they they had so much um, research in Finland so they were looking at kind of the way that you educate young people, the way that you care about how happy they are, um, and that was that came through very strongly to our young people. They felt that 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 Finland cares about its young people and it's thoughtful in in what it's doing for them. So it's it's, it's really interesting because you you guided us a lot in our thinking. So thank you.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's really inspiring to look at sort of how you. You're really sort of putting happiness out there like that is actually the, the end goal and 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 both of um you know the examples that you mentioned you know both Ruth and Kaisa you know there is a distinction between consulting with young people you know asking them for feedback on, 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 a, on a preset idea or 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 vision for that future and actually asking them what is your vision what do you want things to be there's a, re- a a very clear distinction and i think it's really exciting that you're really shifting the needle and, and and the and the positive direction cassie do you do you have any reflections on on thinking systemically from from your perspective
3: um, i mean i've probably touched on it a bit already in what i said but i i think i annoy everyone um at work and probably beyond by reminding people all the time that um you know doing system shifting work or thinking systemically designing systemically however we might want to talk about it or or funding systemically um it it's it's never just one thing and i think that you, you know that that isn't always um the way people tend to think they're like well it's all about shifting the power or it's all about building evidence through data or it's all about young people or it's all about older people or you know and and of course at different times different people or communities need to be centered um but sometimes we do need learned expertise not just lived expertise expertise sometimes you can only get expertise through practice so we need practice you know so i i feel like generally um we're, we're not good at thinking more plurally about change and about what's needed. And it's it's always multiple threads entwined. And I think that also is similar around sort of siloing in sectors too. So I think one of the things that I really saw during the crisis is there was a real, you know, like sectors dissolved. this idea of, you know, in, in community, the private sector, charities, local group, ev- everyone mobilized together. Um, and and again, for, for me, if, if we're going to work systemically, those kind of silos or di- divisions are really unhelpful. Um, you know, it's that interdependence, the interlinking, um, that that we need to find ways to work with. And and I think funders are not good at funders want to be reductive and simplified and all of those things. And um, I, th- I think we we need to like work better with complexity.
0: Yeah, I can't, I couldn't agree more, Cassie, I think the sort of singular view to, you know, we need the sort of the, sil- the silver bullet, you know, there's one 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 solution that's going to crack this actually undermines the complexity of, you know, of our system, of, of us as a society, of of our individual, individuality and diversity and, and of the ecosystem within which we operate. So I think it's, that's a really, that's a really good sort of provocation and invitation. To think and, and to work with complexity and to think about multiple interventions and m- multiple potential approaches. Thank you for sharing. Um, I, um, I have another question um, that relates to the need to, to act entrepreneurially. Obviously, you've all been acting very entrepreneurially over the last year, probably really on the edge. Um, and, um, and again, when we talk about the RSA's living change approach, uh, we advocate for entrepreneur, entrepreneurial thinking um, in order to generate innovative interventions um, and the best um, and to give the best opportunities the chance to fly. Um, so this means seizing the moment where there is that energy and capacity for change. Collaborating, you know, bringing all of these sort of disciplines and diverse experiences around ideas, testing, learning and iterating regularly and in the open. So I guess reflecting on, on that sort of entrepreneurial mindset or philosophy, what are some of the ways that you feel you have acted entrepreneurially and how you've innovated in the last few months?
2: I can start at this time. Uh, yeah, for me, uh, being like really in charge of the the really the front line on what's happening and what are we gonna do tomorrow? What are we gonna do now? Because the, the things are changing, and and also the people around you want to know, and everybody's a bit confused and and afraid as well. I think the thing is that you have to uh, have the boldness. Of of making the decisions even though you're not certain is it okay or not? (laughs) Because uh, the worst thing would be of not having the answers for the people who who want want some kind of clarity on on what's going on. So I think uh, in this position, the most most important thing is for me that I really uh, had to make the decision and also take the chance that it's gonna be wrong. And then be ready to change it. And, uh, you know, still. have um, the information and the answer for the ones who wanted, you know, the whole city, of course, uh, in a way that they don't, it doesn't seem that, oh, she doesn't know what she's doing, or how is it changing all the time, that it's uh, it's always open, like very transparent, that, y- that they, they can really rely on that uh, these decisions are made uh, uh, with the best information that we have now, and now we have a decision, and if that will uh, turn out to be a wrong one then we'll just change it and i think it is uh really important to understand that especially in a crisis situation where nobody knows the right answers only afterwards you can say was it right or wrong so that there there will be um boldness to do the decisions
0: guys okay, so i think that's really interesting that sort of humility you know to say that you know no one knows what they're doing we're all experiencing this for the first time and we're working with the data and the insights that we have and if we and if we get it wrong we will we will iterate and we will we will make things better thank you for sharing that um cassie Ruth. any thoughts on entrepreneurial thinking um and and the need to embrace that and how you've embraced that in the last year
3: yeah i mean i i sort of really agree to what kaiser was saying then about the not knowing i think you know we're all operating in an environment where none of us know very much a lot of the time um and i think you know we we've created this whole series of what we've been calling open inquiries which is us trying to think about how to design our strategy going forward not you know we're we're going to have new leadership and i'm sure they'll also want to design the strategy but um you know no organization at the moment can authentically be setting a five-year strategy or a three-year strategy. I mean, who who can possibly do that? I mean, I would have said that anyway before the crisis, um, because I believe much more in emergence, but the crisis has, I think, laid bare why any kind of certainty and any kind of fixed strategy doesn't really make sense in a world that is in so much flux so I think we've been quite bold by by sort of creating these open inquiries as a space to say you know we are inquiring with you and we want to hear what you're all inquiring about and we will keep sharing that back so so I'm really glad that we're doing that but I also um, I actually love that the word entrepreneurialism is brought into these kind of conversations because unfortunately it has some associations now too much with like the Silicon Valley kind of, you know, but actually for me, entrepreneurialism is so much about, it is an energy you bring to things. It's about an initiative that you take. It's about creativity, seeing the possibility in things, combining things in new ways. It's about creating new value. Um, And I really don't feel like we um, have enough of that actually in a lot of our funding cultures um, for for probably various reasons. Um, So I would love there to be more of that energy in funding. Um, And I also guess that funders, um, you know, a key role for funders is to be better at really seeing where that energy is bubbling up in community and trying to get money to it. Um yeah, so
1: that's what I'd add. Oh, and that links into what I was going to say in terms of um, the communities that I've been working alongside. I think the, the entrepreneurialism um has come from this whole this whole experience has kind of increased the boldness. I think before there was a kind of power imbalance, especially, for example, with funders, as Cathy's talking about, where you're you're aware there's money out there, so you're thinking, OK, how, well, what do they want to hear and how do we need to say it in a way that it will be? And, and some of that's gone. And actually, the work that we've been doing has been much more about this is what we need, we're on the ground, we know this is what we need, this is how we need it. And it's been so, it hasn't always worked, but it does feel there's more, um, people have been more receptive to that to communities being strong and knowing what they need and and asking for that directly. So, with, for example, with the young people I've been working with, they said that they wanted to feed every young person for free every night in the school. Um, and because they're young, they, they were like, well, let's just ask. Let's, like, you know, let's just ask we'll just go to the city and just see who will feed the children for free now a couple of years ago i'd been looking for funding bids and this and that and they literally put it out then to social media and restaurants have come back and said yes we will feed these children for free and i think there's something about being direct and being bold if you know the cause and you know the issue and speaking with authority on it i think that communities are a feeling they can step into that space far more than before
3: another thing i think this entrepreneurialism is about, it is about that constant questioning of, but is that really what we have to do? Like, do we know that that is how things have to be done? Like, it's that constant questioning of the the status quo. Um, And that can be quite exhausting actually. (laughs) Um, and, And also don't do it for the sake of it, just be really annoying to everyone around you. But there are often many myths carried around, especially in big organizations about what is and isn't possible and often something is actually possible um, someone just hasn't thought of a better or a different way to do it
0: yeah I think a really common thread across I guess like um, all of your responses is that um, it feels like we invest too much in certainty like we invest a lot in sort of the evidence gathering the planning you know spending a lot of time planning what we're going to do and less about you know we spend we're, we invest less in uncertainty like actually giving things a go you know putting things out there seeing what happens questioning as you said Cassie you know being able to change things and being open and flexible to change things um so yeah these are um yeah really wonderful reflections we're coming up to the end of the time that we have together but I did want to ask you one last question um so briefly, what is one thing from this experience that you would like to hold on to or amplify for the long term?
2: Well, if I start again, I, I think uh, what we just talked about, like questioning all the time, the studies quo and also uh, creating new value with uh, thinking that's um, a little bit out of the box all the time. I think that's something we already did have this, of course before the the pandemic time but i think it took us into a totally different level that no really you cannot do it the, the old way any, anymore and you have to think something new and i think we've uh, had such a good re- results and i think everybody is very motivated in that sense also to continue that so we we cannot lose this after the pandemic is gone
1: yeah, I, I think, um, yeah, I like that. I think for for me, it's been something about communities being um, organised and knowing their priorities and, and having more confidence and self-belief in their abilities to deliver some change. Um, and w- whatever community that might be, it might be young people, old people, whoever whoever those people are, um, and not to wait patiently at the back of the, the queue and expect that whoever's up there to, to notice you and to to see your plight, but to get yourself organised and, and make sure you're heard?
3: One one thing is really hard. Um, so I'm going to just say something that's different from the other things I've already said, because I want all of those too. <laughs> um, but I, I, I think a word for me that's just really important through all of this is care. Um, you know, like deep care. I think we've learned a lot in this last year about like what really matters, what's really essential, like what we need to take care of. The people who get paid the least have taken the most care out of all of us. Um, the slowing down for some of some things and what that's meant in terms of what we pay different attention to. Um, so yeah, everything to be more imbued with care.
0: That's a great point um, to end on, and I guess I wish we had more time together. I've been really enjoying this conversation. I hope you have too. Um, Thank you all so much again for for joining us, for sharing your time today. For those of you watching, uh, you'll find links to delve deeper into Ruth, Kaisa and Cassie's work in the live chat bar and on the RSA website. Do follow them on Twitter if you haven't already to keep up with their brilliant work. Um, The RSA Living Change season is running throughout March and April. So do check out um, our website and uh, our social media channels to find out what's in store in the weeks ahead. We'd love to hear experiences and stories of change from you. um, So from your families, your neighborhoods, workplaces and communities. So please do share your stories using the Twitter hashtag RSA change. Um, it's been a fantastic conversation so thank you again Ruth, Kaisa and Cassie and thank you all for watching. Thanks for listening if you like this podcast head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks interviews and animations